0: Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today's podcast is one of the special episodes that we're publishing during 2020 to mark 100 years of women's suffrage in the United States. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified on the 18th of August of 1920. My guests today are Caitlin McGurk and Rachel Miller, who are the curators of an exhibit called Ladies First, which celebrates a century of women's innovations in comics and cartoon art. The show is on until May 2020 at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum on the Ohio State University's Columbus campus. Caitlin and Rachel, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Can I start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to devise this exhibit? Caitlin, I'll put that question to you first.
1: Sure. So I'm the associate curator of outreach and an assistant professor over at the Billy Island. And we had known that the 2020 anniversary of the suffrage movement was coming up and that we wanted to do an exhibit celebrating it. Uh, we decided that we wanted to bring in another voice, in particular, Rachel Miller, who is an expert in contemporary women's comics, mini comics, alternative comics. And she and I came together to curate this show. We didn't want to do an exhibit that was just showing comics by women generally, because first of all, there's a ton of them, but also that's kind of a given to us that women are contributing to the field. So we decided to instead focus on this idea of innovators. So what you'll see in the exhibit is both individual cartoonist innovators and collectives of women cartoonist innovators who helped push the medium forward. Okay,
0: great. Uh, Rachel, so how did you get involved
1: in this? What's your background in comics?
0: Well, I came to Ohio
2: State to do my graduate work and specifically to work with comics. And in particular, I study 90s era women cartoonists. So that's my particular area of focus, but I kind of have also a more holistic view of the medium. Um, in terms of of women working in it. So that's kind of what brought me to the Billy Ireland and to this particular project.
0: So how did you go about constructing this exhibition? It's divided into various sections, such as women uh, suffrage cartoonists and women who created cartoons for newspapers. How did you start devising these sections?
1: So we knew we were covering 100 years, and we weren't going to hone in on one specific uh, format. We wanted to cover all of it. And so we looked at the different formats that have been dominant over the past 100 years. The one area we really kind of left out is web comics, I will say, and there's probably others as well. But we focused on kind of the main areas and highlighted innovators within each.
0: The exhibit opens with the suffrage cartoons, and there's a little bit of information in the panel that's uh, adjacent to this area, which describes how women were creating cartoons from the time that cartoons were appearing in popular media. How did they get into those positions? Because we always hear that it was very difficult for women to work in any kind of profession which was dominated by men. Have you any idea how women were actually getting this kind of work? In terms of the suffrage cartoons, women in the
2: suffrage movement were publishing their own um, essentially newspapers or newsletters and broadsides. So that's where we find a lot of the uh, women cartoonists that are featured in that section. Um, Many of them are publishing in women's journals and broadsides and newspapers. So I think they were able to break into that field from um, it just being run by other women. Uh, Certainly that's not the case for other sections. We have a subsection about uh comics in world war ii in particular and women were able to uh, break into comics in that era because men were being drafted into war and these publishers really wanted um to just fill up you know comics were huge this was called the golden age of comics um and they wanted to fill up their staples with artists so they would kind of take anyone
0: okay so it's like the cartoon equivalent of rosie the riveter really sure
1: yeah if you could call it that sure and then there's um you know, comic strip artists that got in pretty early, like Rose O'Neill and Grace Strayton, and some of that, you know, uh, was because they were contributing individual cartoons to magazines like Puck or Judge um, or Punch, which were humor magazines from the 1800s and and uh, into the 1900s. So they got their start through that and through some networking, ended up getting um, comic strip deals. But one of the things that you know Rachel and I found really interesting is looking at the content of. What was being published by women in those early comic strips, which is all very like women and children, kind of, you know, softer stuff until later on. And then there's other cartoonists uh, in that newspaper comic strip section in particular, like uh, Dale Messick, who got in by publishing under a male name, and June Tarpe Mills, who published under Tarpe Mills. Um, Dale Messick's actual name is Dahlia. And so they got in through, you know, submitting their materials under a male pseudonym or androgynous pseudonyms.
0: Okay. So let's go back to the suffrage cartoons. There's a whole wall of them. And how influential do you think they were in pushing forward the idea that women should get the vote? And how did they push it back against cartoons at the time that were campaigning against women to get the vote?
1: If you look at the start of our show, where the intro label is, on the on the right hand side, there is one cartoon in the whole exhibit uh, that is by a, a man, and it's it's on the label in that section. And what we used it to show was the way that male cartoonists, who were the dominant car- kind of cartoonists, um, were portraying suffragettes and suffragists in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So we've got a male-dominated field of cartooning. Um, The creators often were not for women's suffrage, like many men were not. And so, of course, they were depicting suffragettes and suffragists in the movement in a very unflattering manner. Uh, They were drawn to be really mannish, you know, the old spinster idea, these really kind of sad, dowdy, big, angry women. And, of course, as a result, the, the, the idea was if you were a young woman or a woman of any age thinking of getting involved in the movement and your uh, visual understanding of what a suffragette looks like is that, and it's so unflattering, you're not going to want to get involved. So... Um, at that time, you know the printed image was everything. You know, before we have the amount of visual media we have today, that's how people understood the world around them, whether they were even able to read or not. Um, cartoons, in particular, carried a lot of weight to form stereotypes. So um, that was one that was formed, and it wasn't until women cartoonists like the ones we've shared uh, through our exhibit, like Nina Allender, got involved that they were able to rebrand the image of the suffragette to show that it could be in every woman, but it's you know specifically every white woman. So it's you know important to recognize that it's uh, the 100th anniversary of when white women were able to get the right to vote. But these cartoonists got involved, and I do think it was really impactful. I think that they influenced a lot of... Uh, women of all ages to get involved in the movement. Suffrage was also not the only topic that they were talking about, too. So in the exhibit, you can see them commenting on prohibition, uh, talking about child welfare and, you know, a variety of other topics.
0: Now, do you have any standout favorite images from that section of uh, suffrage cartoons? Rachel, I'll put that question to you first.
1: This isn't on the big wall
2: of the suffrage cartoons, but it's in one of the um, cases, yeah, Um, which is a cover of a journal called The Birth Control Review, which was Margaret Sanger's journal, and on that cover is an image of a woman who is tied to kind of a ball and chain, and on the ball and chain it says unwanted babies. I find that image to be very striking and powerful. I think it's from 1923, but it kind of demonstrates the extent to which these issues have been pervasive throughout American culture and really in the discourse for over 100 years now. That image just dramatizes how the fight for reproductive justice has been so long, so ongoing.
1: Right, right. And Caitlin, do you have a favorite from that section? My favorites are probably all the ones drawn by Lou Rogers, who was a major uh, innovator in in suffrage cartooning back then. She later on became the art director for Birth Control Review, which Rachel mentioned. One cartoon of hers that's in the show is one of the first political cartoons she ever made. It's just called The Male Voter. And it's a drawing of a man with a puffed out chest standing on top of a ballot box. And he has donkey ears and a paper crown on his head. And he's holding a diploma that says degree in male egotism. And the caption is just the ballot box is mine because it's mine. And all of her work is very edgy like that. In fact, that cartoon was considered too controversial to even be published in the Women's Journal, which is where the majority of these women were publishing at the time. So her stuff is really wonderful. The other artist that we call attention to in that section who has a great local connection is Edwina Dumb. Edwina Dumb was the first woman in the United States to be hired full-time at a newspaper as a political cartoonist. And that newspaper was here in Columbus. It was called the Columbus Monitor. It was a Republican newspaper that only existed from, I believe, like 1915 to 1918. But they hired Edwina, who was quite young at the time, to make political cartoons before she was even allowed to vote as a woman. That's
0: extraordinary, yes. She was only 23, I think I remember seeing from the Post. Am I right in remembering that her father was in the newspaper industry or something like that?
1: He was. Her father was involved in editing newspapers, yeah. Caitlin, I just want to go back to something you said uh, a little bit early. You said that it's 100
0: years since white women got the right to vote, I understood it as women getting the right to vote.
1: It's women getting the right to vote, but as we know through the civil rights movement, um, African Americans, male or female, were really blocked from voting until the 1960s.
0: Okay, just to make that clear. Okay, so the next section is the newspaper comic section. And I, I noticed a particularly striking series of cartoons there come from a woman called Jackie Orms, who I think is the first African American woman with a national comic strip is that right rachel
2: so jackie orms worked for historically black newspapers in pittsburgh She was not nationally syndicated, but she was the first woman to have an ongoing newspaper strip being serialized in a newspaper. Um, She had several strips uh, during that time period in the 1940s. She had a strip called Torchy Brown and the Heartbeats. And then she also had Patty Joe, and Ginger. We have three original pieces in the show from that strip. True to its name, it follows the kind of adventures of a younger sister and her older sister. And this strip was actually the basis for the first upscale black baby doll who had an upscale wardrobe and previous to this many black baby dolls fell into a lot of racialized stereotypes a lot of negative stereotypes so Jackie Orms's doll was the first that was
0: available to consumers that kind of broke from those stereotypes and again she's doing the same as you're talking about during the suffrage era she's pushing it back against other ways that people of color were portrayed in images who else is significant as a female cartoonist in newspaper comics?
1: There are um, a lot that we talk about in the show. Uh, One of them that I'm particularly fond of is Dale Messick, who, as I mentioned, her actual name is Dahlia, but she got her start by submitting her comics to the newspapers under the male pseudonym, Dale. And she created Brenda Starr Reporter, which I think is still being reproduced in the newspapers today. It's one of the longest running and most successful comic strips ever created by a woman. She is also responsible for introducing one of the first queer characters into comics. So she had a character fairly early on in the strip called Hank O'Hare. Who was Brenda Starr's kind of best friend and colleague. And Hanko Hare is very much well, while, they never outright say it, she is very much modeled as a as a lesbian character. oh, so Hanko Hare is a woman He's a woman. ok. Yes, who dresses in men's suits? OK but is a female character. So she's coded as a lesbian in the comic strip. I've done some writing about that strip and was able to interview Dale Messick's daughter who said that Dale Messick received uh, hate mail because of it. And so later on in the strip, if you follow it, she has her marry a man, even though it's kind of uh, something she had to do to appease readers. And
0: what are the characteristics of Brenda Starr that made her such a hit, do you think?
1: Well, she was a woman character who was fighting crime while also solving crime getting kidnapped and also, you know, saving people from being kidnapped. I think it was rare to see a woman character in that kind of a position, let alone in the position of being a journalist, you know, being a reporter in general. That wasn't really something people were used to. I mean, this strip debuted in the late 30s, early 40s. And it was a daily comic. So when something's running seven days a week in front of that many eyeballs, like it's a continuous strip. So you could follow along with the story and her adventures. And it really just connected with an audience all over the United States. And, you know, something that I have always admired about it but i think could be a turnoff for some people is that dale messick never shied away from letting brenda she she didn't have to be entirely like one-sided you know she was just as interested in fashion as she was in journalism and crime solving and stuff like that so i always really liked that about the character and it spurned a series of paper dolls so she was successful in a variety of ways.
0: So another section you've got is magazine comics. Are we talking about magazines full of comics or are we talking about comic strips in magazines?
1: The magazine section is specifically things like the New Yorker cartoons. So the magazines we're referring to are magazines that are are magazines that happen to include some cartoons in them. So the New Yorker would be the best example of that. Others would be like... Playboy or Esquire, Puck or Punch. Uh, these are, you know, typically humorous magazines, sometimes political magazines that happen to include one-panel cartoons. We
2: do have a section on, that we call alternative newspaper cartoons that I think is worth noting because what we mean by alternative newspapers are things like feminist newsletters, feminist newspapers from the 1970s, or just newspaper cartoons that kind of had more of a political slant to them so in this section are pieces from from artists like Nicole Hollander who strips Sylvia she syndicated herself in many national newspapers and Sylvia was kind of this like ribald outspoken feminist who lived life by her own rules and it was you know it's very rare to see that depiction in a newspaper strip
0: Can you give us an example of something that she might do that's depicted in the cartoon?
2: There are strips of her having conversations with her cats. There's a set of strips of her uh, where she's speaking to the reader from her bathtub. So um, she'll talk about, you know, the fall of Western civilization or women's reproductive rights. Or, um, you know, the very, very first strip, which we have displayed in the show, is her having a conversation with her daughter about feminism and men. So what Nicole did was really tackle these issues head on in a very humorous way and she was kind of unafraid she would not back down from telling these stories and telling them in a voice that was very progressive as it also was very
0: direct. And I think Alison Bechdel also appears in this section doesn't she? Yes we
2: have an original page from Alison's strip uh, called Dykes to Watch Out For which was a strip that ran during the 1970s in feminist newsletters in particular and followed basically a cast of Uh, women um, who are all living in New York City who are all lesbians or all queer. It's almost like a Victorian novel when you read that body of work because of the depth and complexity of these characters and and in a serial
0: format being able to engage with them from week to week. Oh very Dickensian. Yeah exactly. Alison Bechdel she's probably one of the best known female comics working today. How, How come she's reached this pinnacle of female cartoonist fame or cartoonist
1: fame at all you know her book fun home or graphic novel fun home is really one of the breakthrough graphic novels so if you look at the history of, of uh, graphic novels which is a fairly recent history there are truly only a few that have reached that level um, fun home is the kind of book that has been taught in schools high schools middle schools and college and it's a very very powerful well written Uh, memoir story, and it's been created into a Broadway play that traveled internationally. So I think she's just reached a different level of fame because she's enormously talented and was able to kind of break through and create something that is not just an easy to read graphic novel, but tackles a variety of different subject matters and connects with people.
2: And I think that one of the things that we showcase in the show is that, like, Allison's success did not come from, like, nowhere. A Fun Home came out in, I think, 2006, but, again, she had been working in comics for three decades at that point and is really one of the artists who I think has shaped the, the language of comics. Um, we also have strips in this alternate newspaper section from an artist called Barbara Brendan Croft. She was the first black woman to have a nationally syndicated uh, newspaper strip, and her strip was called Where I'm Coming From. and I find it unique because the way that the strip looks is it breaks from a lot of conventions of cartooning in that It just shows the heads of its characters, and her characters are always directly addressing the audience, talking about issues, kind of really facing forward and facing the reader head on. But doing it in this very conversational way, this very humanist way, it's a wonderful piece.
0: There are a couple of other sections in the exhibit that caught my eye. One was on underground comics. So tell us a little bit about the underground comic movement.
2: So the underground comics movement um, was a movement that emerged in the late 1960s, early 70s. This movement kind of aligned with with a lot of the countercultural movements that were emerging at the time so you could think of like the hippie counterculture um, and a lot of these artists were based out of San Francisco and New York City in mainstream comics we see the institution of what is called the Comics Code Authority in the 1950s and this really was not unlike the rating system for um, movies but it was a body that was like actively censoring comics so with the undergrounds what we see is uh, collectives of artists who are self-publishing or starting their own small presses to publish their comics so it's completely outside of the mainstream industry and it's not beholden to the same kinds of rules as the mainstream Um, so we see artists in this movement addressing topics that have not been really visualized or talked about sex drugs um, alternative lifestyles Um, again, kind of things that are intersecting with that countercultural movement that's emergent during the 1960s and 70s. And for women, um, they were somewhat pushed to the margins, even though it was like a very uh, socially progressive movement, they were still not at the center of it. It was very much still a boys club. And there was a lot of misogyny, a lot of racism that was threaded through those underground comics that are kind of what's thought of when we think of the underground movement so what women did during that time was they formed their own collectives and they began to publish anthologies so collected works with multiple women in it and these were a way to bring visibility to their comics to their work and to their their contributions and in these comics they would address issues like queerness abortion domestic violence and just even like more prosaic aspects of life. There's this one beautiful cover of an anthology called Twisted Sisters, which was edited by Eileen Kaminsky-Crumb and Diane Newman. And it shows Eileen's uh, kind of avatar sitting on the toilet, looking at herself in the mirror. This is like a very um, in-your-face way of depicting femininity, both the um, beauty and the grotesqueness of what it is like to be a woman. And a lot of the underground comics are like that. They're unabashed in their approach to these topics and to visualizing what women's lives are actually like.
0: Is this also the section where we find the bosomic woman meets the hunk?
2: Yeah, um, again, like there was this kind of edgy humor to these comics and their like satirization of how women are depicted in visual media. One of my favorites is called Disastrous Relationship Land by Karen Lynch. And she imagines all these different relationship pitfalls as amusement park rides. It's very satirical and very cutting. So that's very typical of like the tone and the kind of style of the underground.
0: Okay, and I think going back to the bosomic woman meets the hunk, I think she's using her uh, massive breasts to slay men, I think, or entangle them and slay them or something. There's something going on there.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, as you should, so.
0: <laughs> and then I think the final section in uh, the exhibit is um, bring it right up to the present day, and that's alternative comics. So what
1: is the definition of an alternative comic? I would say the best way to think of this is it's alternative to the mainstream, So underground comics is its own entire thing. It was done very much, as Rachel said, in a DIY method. It was going around the mainstream, and you can think of the mainstream as being like Marvel and DC Comics. So it was its own totally separate thing. We have alternative comics, which in some ways kind of combines the two. So alternative is alternative to the mainstream, but not far enough out as to be underground comics. And it's also just entering into the 80s and 90s, so we were kind of past this counterculture era to begin with. Some of these things were more acceptable. Um, There were publishing houses that would kind of veer to the side of the mainstream that were starting to distribute this kind of stuff. But it was building off of uh, a lot of the content and ideas that were created during the underground comics movement. So telling really personal stories. And um, in particular, one thing that we've explored in the show um, is telling stories that are um, like complete comics by a single author. So in the underground comics, though this isn't the case across the board, the majority of the publications by women are anthologies. They're created from collectives, whereas in the alternative comics movement, we see entire series that are made by single women.
2: And we also start to see a push towards picking up on the the undergrounds telling more personal stories about women's lives. During the alternative moment, we see just an explosion of women who are telling stories about their lived experiences. So women like Phoebe Gluckner, who is doing stories about growing up in a domestically tenuous situation talking about you know her experiences with sexuality from a young age again linda berry and then one of two full stories that we have in the exhibit is um the Hannah Story by Carol Tyler, which is a story about family loss, secrets, grief, and memory, and is widely regarded to be one of the best comics of um, ever <laughs> in terms of the history of American comics and cartoons. So the alternatives kind of feed into what we now understand to be graphic novels. Many of them are not novels. They're actually memoirs or nonfiction. Uh, so it's kind of a misnomer. But the alternatives kind of lay a groundwork for what women have gone on to do in, in terms of graphic novel. Well
0: I'm just going to thank you very much um, Rachel Miller and Caitlin McGurk for coming to talk to us about the Ladies First exhibit at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum on the Ohio State University Columbus campus. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
0: I'm Rachel Hopkin and this has been an episode of Real Issues Real Conversations which is a production of Ohio Humanities the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This programme is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sokolovsky Music at SokolovskyMusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks. And to learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit OhioHumanities.org.